Well, hey, everyone, it's Ann O'Neill, a former academic and athletic All-American from Iowa State University in women's basketball. I am the host of the Get Busy Living podcast, and you are listening to the Shadows podcast. Hey, Shadows listeners, if you're looking to make some extra income that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with Giant. If you don't already know, Giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years. I got certified through Giant in 2018 and I've been teaching ever since. Just to give you some context, they used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry Cloud, Malcolm Gladwell, and Simon Sinek, just to name a few, were regular speakers. They have over 500 coaches worldwide working in over 127 countries and are being hired by companies like Google, Chick-fil-A, Pfizer, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. I know this might sound intimidating, but Giant will literally give you everything you need to start your own coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using. You get an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely. And you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from all around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business. This is both for experienced coaches, consultants, and those who are looking to start coaching and consulting with little to no experience. If you want to hear the really good news, this whole workshop, it's free, 100% free. And you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv forward slash shadows. Why not give it a shot? What's better than making a positive change in people's lives and making some extra money in the process? Giant launches a new hiring cohort every month. Now, they only have 20 coaching slots available each month. So it's first come first serve. So go ahead and make sure you reserve your spot. If you're ready to make an impact and get paid doing it, go to giant.tv forward slash shadows, giant.tv forward slash shadows. You know, most people go through life aiming at nothing and hit it with amazing accuracy. And they find themselves just feeling stuck in a rut, wondering if this is all there is. And I'm here to tell you, no, it is not. And life is too dang short to live it stuck in a rut. So check out beyondtherut.com and listen to episodes of other people who are also feeling stuck in a rut, asking themselves the same questions you are around their faith, their family, their fitness, their finances, and just their outlook on future possibility. And there, we hope that you are encouraged and inspired to make your own path and live life beyond the rut so again go check out beyond the where you can find blog posts and podcast episodes as well as some tools to help you design the targets you wish to hit in life in those five f's faith family fitness finances and future possibility because again life is too dang short to live it stuck in a rut now go check it out beyond the rut it's yours
All right. I want to welcome everyone to another episode of the Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Odenheimer. And before we get going, I have a very special co-host with me today. This is something I have not had in quite some time. Uh, in fact, thinking back, it's probably been since one of my first couple of episodes that I had a co-host. You might know this voice. It sounds familiar, especially if you listen to our Lima Charlie episode or if you're following the Lima Charlie Network, which all of our listeners should already be doing. She is one of the co-hosts of the Llama Lounge, Nina Choi Miller. Nina, welcome to the Shadows Podcast. Thank you for having me, Bodie. This is exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on here. This is something that we've talked about for quite some time. I, I got you on loan from the Llama Lounge. Um, I don't know if they even know you're here. I think <laughs> Joe probably knows. Didn't we say that I was like a wire thing? Uh, like a free waiver wire waiver wire that's what it was yep you're a waiver wire so yeah (laughs) that's that's exactly what's going on here but we want to welcome a very special guest to the show today she's just as I told her whenever we logged in here she's one of the most decorated guests we've ever had here on the show Sandra Stowes did I say that correct last name you got it Bodie okay perfect she is the so Sit back, folks, for a minute as I read this. She is retired Vice Admiral of the United States Coast Guard with 40 years of experience. What a career. She's the first woman to command an icebreaker on the Great Lakes and to lead a U.S. Armed Forces Service Academy. Let that statement sit in there for a minute. 12 years at sea, commanding two ships, ended her career as the first woman assigned as Deputy Commandant for Mission Support. And then in 2012, Newsweek's uh, the Daily Beast named her to the list of 150 women who shaped the world. She is also an author, which we'll get into her book later on. Whew, all of that. Ma'am, welcome to the Shadows Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, we're very pleased to have you. And before we get going, we are going to put you through the five rounds presented by a sponsor to show Giant Worldwide. Head over to giant.tv forward slash shadows. Check out all the awesome material that they have over there. But first question for you, what is the biggest fear you have? The biggest fear? You know, my biggest fear is one that has um, haunted me my whole life. And it's another way to look at it is one podcast asked me, what's your biggest failure? And it really is the fear And the failure and the failure to myself. And, uh, but still I feel always like I have such a high hurdle to, um, achieve, to meet expectations. And you said, Bodhi, you're the most, one of the most highly decorated people. So there you go. So now, okay. The expectations are, well, there must be something there that needs uh, the special. So I've always, um, felt that my biggest fear is to letting people down. So mm-hmm. the expectations that here's a senior person, here's the first woman, this and that. And I've always feared that maybe I would let them down because that the shiny exterior was there, but was there enough meat? And so I've always really, really worked hard to um, be the best I can be to meet people's expectations, to make the Coast Guard look good and to um, make myself um, 
not that I'm trying to look good, but you know what I mean? To have the, yeah. the um, pride that you are, you are worth somebody else's time to listen to or to be instructed by or whatever. So that's a little bit of a, a longer answer than you might've expected, but that is it. That's good. Sandy, what is your favorite childhood memory? Oh, favorite childhood memory. There's a lot of them, but I, the first one that came to mind and I always go with what first comes to mind, um, is spending some part of each summer on Cape Cod at my grandparents' house on the beach. So it was just magical. We would get to go up to Cape Cod and, um, and fish for crabs and um, clams and quahogs and ride our bicycles all around. I had three brothers. So the four of us kids would be able to range all over the place, go swimming. And um, there's the bay that my grandparents had a house um, near the bay. Then there's the main ocean. So it was a childhood paradise for a kid who's active and wants to explore. It sounds like the ocean was a really big part of your life growing up. Yeah. And it always has been. You know, but it was a small piece. So I was um, born and raised in Ellicott City, Maryland, which is inland, but it's near, eh, it's an hour away from Annapolis, where the Naval Academy is and where the Chesapeake Bay is. But no, I didn't sail. I didn't um, spend time on the ocean. I spent those precious little summers on Cape Cod just for two or three weeks with my grandparents um, on my mom's side. But I think that that little bit of time was able to um, pique my interest in the sea and the ocean, the adventure, the um, feeling of freedom that you have when you're looking at the wide blue ocean or you're swimming in it as a little kid, something so much bigger than yourself, right? You're a little kid swimming in the ocean. And so I um, got that looking back, because certainly as a kid, I didn't think this way. I got that perspective that, hey, I'm part of something bigger than myself here on Cape Cod at, by the sea. Planted those seeds at a young age, yeah. Yeah. Okay. What, um, what's a book outside of your book? What is a book recommendation that you have for our listeners? You know, there's a couple of good ones. There's um, um, Sally Helgeson, How Women Rise. And that's, um, she goes through 12 different um habits that women can can have not all women that hold them back and i read that book and i'm like check 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 this is me so there are some things i think that can be specific to the different genders and uh so that one there how women rise by sally helgeson and then i always just go back i just love um the one by um, jocko willink and leaf babin um it's extreme ownership Stream ownership. It's because it's six o'clock at night. I am just like on my downslope time, extreme ownership. And I talk about this book all the time. So, okay, I'm 62. So maybe I have an excuse for things going out. But yeah, those two books. So one of them is about, you know, being responsible for everything you do. And that speaks to me. It speaks to that greatest fear I had. So a book like that is like, yeah, you know, you own it, you're accountable, you need to do your best and uh, be your best for everyone around you. And then the one by Sally Helgeson is more directed at um, how women can rise and succeed. See, Nina's already paying dividends for being on here. So yes, she helped me out of my slump. I wrote that down though, as a book that I want to check out now. (laughs) And that, that book, actually both of those books and your book, Uh, So we're going to have three from this episode that'll be listed under our book recommendations on our website. So next question, 
and this is this is kind of an easier one. What is it that you do to decompress? Oh, that's easy. So I'm an introvert, like a, on a scale of one to 10, I'm a 10 on the introvert scale. So anything by myself. So yoga, let's pick yoga because it has a combination of solitude, quiet, deep breathing and inner focus on focusing on your mind, body and spirit. So there you go. Yoga, <laughs> reading a good book by a fire, a <laughs> couple of, uh, of really relaxing activities that I enjoy. Okay. And final question for you. You could have dinner for three with three historical figures who are no longer with us. Who would you pick? You know, I think about this question on occasion when I'm walking or something and my mind is wandering because you get asked that question frequently. And I'm thinking, you know, what if those people that are kind of famous in the past are kind of boring dinner mates? (laughs) So uh, it's probably not a exact right answer. There's so many people. So, you know, just to pick three, I've always thought that I would like to sit down with Jesus Christ. <laughs> but you know, on second thought, I would like to sit down with his mother, Mother Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that's who I'm gonna say and ask her what she thought about finding out she was pregnant. So I think the Virgin Mary, um, and then to pick a more tangible figure, Ulysses S. Grant. And my brother just gave me a book on Grant um, for Christmas. So I'm eager to read that. And I just think he, um, doesn't get enough credit. Abraham Lincoln gets all the credit in that day, but I'm not sure our country would be <laughs> what it is today if it wasn't for Ulysses S. Grant coming in and uh, making the um, the you know post Civil War period work. And then I would say um, I'm going to pick a Coast Guard person. I sit down with Dorothy Stratton. She died as a captain at the age of like 107, and she was the first woman to serve as an officer in the Coast Guard Reserve during World War II. And our coast, our reserve was the um, SPARS, the Semper Paratus Always Ready. That's the Coast Guard's motto, Semper Paratus in Latin, always ready is what it means. So SPARS, and I know for the Air Force, it was the WASPs, women women, um, available for service, women auxiliary service pilots, I think it was WASP. Another thing that happens at six o'clock at night, but um, Dorothy Stratton, I'd love to ask her about the origins of uh, really breaking the trail and getting um, um, authority for the Coast Guard to form a, form a women's reserve. Okay, well, those are some awesome answers. A lot of great material. It kind of goes into what we're, especially Nina's question, about to start unpacking here as we chronicle your story. And did I get this correct? You grew up in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Is that where you were born? I was born in uh, born in Tacoma Park and raised in Ellicott City, right up the street. Yeah. Okay. So, talk to us a little bit about your upbringing as a child. So, I was born in 1960. For just so people know, my the context of my age that matters as my story goes on. And my mom and dad um, had met at UMass Amherst, and my dad got a job down working for the Naval Surface Warfare Center in White Oak, Maryland. That's why I was born in that area. And then we moved to Ellicott City. And um, I had three brothers younger. So I was the oldest of three boys with three boys. And I was only three years and 10 months old when the fourth kid was born. And I say that because I ran with a pack of boys, right? Um, We were so close in age. And um, I think that really mattered being the oldest and being um, and having three brothers. 
So when it came time later in life to go to the Coast Guard Academy as one of the first women, maybe it wasn't such a big um, change for me because I've been raised with boys. I knew how boys acted. And, um, and I also been the eldest. So maybe even though I was shy and introverted, I had learned by necessity, some leadership, right? Yeah. So whenever there was anything hard for us kids to do, I had to go first because I was the oldest. Whenever there was something easy, my little brother got to go first. <laughs> and so my dad and mom were both outdoors people and athletes. So we did a lot of hiking and we were on sports and I got, um, involved in swimming and tennis at a young age, but also by the time I was 13, it was 1973, right in the, in the beginning of the oil shock and the great, really big recession in the early 1970s, when interest rates were up in the um, 18% at some one point. And so there wasn't much work. And I knew that going to college was going to be hard. I always aspired to be a scientist, uh, an ornithologist, a um, biologist, anything that ended in ologist kind of fascinated me. So I knew I had to get money for college. So I started working as a 13 year old in the summertime. And I would go up to my other grandparents, my paternal grandparents in um, Amherst, Massachusetts. And I would work on farms in the Connecticut River Valley. So at 13, I worked on a cucumber farm, picking cucumbers for the summer. And then when I was 14 and 15 or 16, I worked on tobacco of all things um, for Consolidated Cigar Corporation under the tents in the fields. Um, and it was tent tobacco that was the leaves, the big leaves that are rolled, the cigars are rolled up in. <laughs> and I was sewing tobacco and, and uh, making money and making, um, I learned what piecework is. So you make a, a minimum wage and you have to meet a quota every day or you'll be fired and nobody wanted to be fired because jobs were scarce but if you went over your quota you made piecework which was extra money beyond your normal um, day's wage and i could buy ice cream with that money <laughs> the extra money so i learned the value of working harder than is expected you get rewarded for that and i also worked with um there were three different kinds of people who worked on farm work. To no great surprise, there were migrant laborers and they were Puerto Rican folks who came up to, just like me, they were term seasonal workers like I was. And um, then there were local girls like me, a few of us. And then there were juvenile delinquent girls. And I say girls because girls and boys were strictly separated on farm work. Girls yeah. all worked together and the boys all worked. You never saw each other. <laughs> and so there were juvenile delinquents who um, stayed in the UMass Amherst dorms for the summer and worked. And they weren't, they were mild delinquents. I mean, some of them were, had a tough edge, but I also learned though, to judge people on who they were, not whether they were a delinquent, whether they were a migrant, whether they were local, because they all work together. And I'm like, oh, so some of these girls who were juvenile delinquents were really nice girls. And the farm laborers were wonderful people that just didn't speak our language. So I learned as a young teenager so much that set me up for success in the Coast Guard, all by working at a young age. And I know a lot of times nowadays, parents, I think, think that a better life for their kid is, oh, they don't have to work. You know, I had to work when I was young. We'll spare them all that so they can concentrate on having fun in school. I'm like, no, spare me the fun and give me the work <laughs> because I want the satisfaction and reward of knowing that I can do something productive. 
And it goes back to that fear of not meeting somebody else's expectation. I always wanted to do more and do something meaningful with a purpose in order to um, achieve my goals and not let anyone else down, including myself. So that's a little tiny bit about my childhood. Beckton needs to go get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Sandy, you had said earlier that you're an introvert. So it, it sounds a little bit like working at that age really helped you to learn how to communicate with people that you normally would never have been exposed to. Absolutely. Because so a lot of people just don't believe I'm an introvert. But if you read the book Quiet by Susan Cain, which is a very popular book, you will find out that introverts can grow and change and adapt to be the people they need to be to achieve their goals. So I can be the person that's very personable and at the party I'm going around and I'm meeting people and I'm greeting and I'm talking. And the difference between me and an extrovert is at the end of that party or that reception, I am making a beeline to my house and I'm going to collapse on the couch. And the extrovert is like, where's the after party? (laughs) Yes. The energy, an energy thing. They take the energy from other people. Mm -hmm. Whereas we introverts are drained by it. It doesn't mean we can't be personable and exciting people and and look like we're extroverts, but it takes a lot out of us. Whereas whereas extroverts feed on that. (laughs) Question for you. What do you think? Because you mentioned you were the oldest with three brothers. If it would have been reverse, if you would have had three older brothers and you would have been the youngest, what do you think you would have ended up doing career-wise? Do you think you still would have gone the same path? You know, I really give credit where it's due because a lot of people wonder why I was successful in the Coast Guard and made it to a higher level and and, uh, all that. And it wasn't all me and hard work and perseverance. It was the situation I was born into thrust into being the oldest. I think if I'd been the youngest, I don't, I don't think I would have, um, I don't know, but I'm going to credit the circumstances that gave me the opportunity by being thrust into leadership roles as a young girl, when I wouldn't want them. Otherwise I would definitely not stretch beyond my comfort zone. When I was a kid, I would have sought the quiet corner where nobody would have seen me. You would have been an ologist. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> a scientist looking at a microscope or a test tube. Um, so by being forced out of my comfort zone, I think that gave me an opportunity I wouldn't have normally had if I'd been the youngest and maybe had three older brothers looking out for me and making it easy for me to be in their shadow. Yeah. Sandy, one of the things I read about you was that both of your parents were engineers what kind of an impact did they have on, on you and maybe your career choice or how you grew up? That's a, a good question because it goes back to no, but no person is an Island and succeeding all on their own. Now, my mom actually was a homemaker and a substitute teacher, <laughs> but she'd ah. be happy to know that somebody somewhere posted that she was an engineer, <laughs> chemical engineer. He was enough engineer for all of us. He was a rocket scientist. He made rockets and jet fuels and bombs for the Navy. (laughs) But um, my mom was a homemaker and I am so glad my mom stayed home and raised me. Now, in those days, I was born in 60. That's a lot of times what mothers did. There weren't nearly as many mothers out in the workforce. My mom substitute taught because she had gone to UMass Amherst and gotten her degree in teaching. 
but um, it influenced me that my dad was a scientist because he would bring home from the laboratory these solid jet fuels and little uh, petri dishes things and talk about blowing. He worked in a bunker <laughs> when he was junior. He was blowing things up and inventing explosives. So he was in a bunker blowing things up. I thought that was so cool. So um, I liked animals and nature. So I didn't really want to be what he did, but I did want to do something where I was um, in the sciences. And my dad definitely influenced me on that. Mm -hmm. When did you know that the military was something that you wanted to do? And then what made it Coast Guard as opposed to all the other branches? So that becomes the second part of my story, which I didn't tell because I figured the conversation would evolve. So I stopped my story about my childhood when I was 15, 16, still, you know, on swim teams, but then going up to work on farm work in the summers. So when I was 18, I went to high school. So this is 1976 that I start high school. Wait a minute, 1974, <laughs> six o'clock at night. <laughs> gosh 1974 so for for um context 1972 was title nine and title nine mm. is the law that provided equal opportunity for education for women and girls yep. and what that meant was when i got to high school in 1974 two years later my high school had assigned um a coach to the women's sports and before that it wasn't needed. So yeah. a high school might just have all the coaches for the men's sports and they might just have somebody, a volunteer that maybe helped the girls uh, do track or something. We had an actual coach assigned and that mattered because I had the chance when I was in high school to participate in sports. And I'd always been athletic. I was a tomboy, of course, being with three brothers, <laughs> my mom would buy me. I'd, I was a tomboy. So I'd take boys clothes and then I'd pass them down to the brother <laughs> So I was athletic um, and I was on, I, I joined the track team, but I couldn't quite find my niche. I'm kind of tall, I'm five, nine. So I, I tried running, but I didn't have good wind. I tried high jumping, but I didn't have good vertical lift. So I wasn't sure where I'd fit on the, on the track team, but a girl who was throwing the shot put one day said, Hey, Sandy, come over here. You look like you could throw. And so she gave me this shot, put, which is a eight pound ball of yeah. metal steel, I think, whatever it is. And, um, I just stood there and threw it and it went a long way. And I'm like, Oh, and they're like, Oh, everybody's like, Oh, okay. You're a shot putter now. And then there was the discus, which is a circular type thing yep. that you throw. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Getting too much into my emotions here. <laughs> I'm pretending I'm throwing the discus again. And so I ended up um, being really good at those two things, but it was by chance and circumstance that somebody called me out and took an interest in me, saw me kind of like looking for where I fit. And the coach really encouraged me. And my high school guidance counselor was my, my swim coach from the summertime. And when it came time to apply to college, um, what happened was it was 1976. So you can see the progression here. Um, we had the Title IX, we had the Equal Rights Amendment in 1973. Then in 1975, actually, the Congress, the National Defense Authorization Act for the next year, 76, um, passed in 75, required all the armed forces service academies to open their doors to women. That's the Coast Guard Academy, the Naval Academy in Annapolis, West Point, and uh, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And 
it made the newspaper. So we were living just an hour away from Annapolis. And one of my neighbors brought over the Baltimore Sun and it had a feature article on the Naval Academy. And they were talking about how the Naval Academy was going to start um, accepting women. And they featured the whole academy, like a whole two page spread. And so my neighbor walked it over to my mom and said, hey, I know Sandy's a tomboy. Maybe she'll be interested in the Naval Academy. So I read that whole article and I was fascinated by it. I mean, the chance to be part of something bigger than yourself, yeah. like that feeling I had in the ocean, girls could go. And I'm like, I never, even though I was really shy, I'm equally as stubborn. I've got German in me. I am so stubborn. <laughs> so if someone tells me, if somebody, here. <laughs> if somebody tells me I can't do something, it's going to get done. Mm -hmm. And so if someone tells me a girl can't go and there's all of a sudden an opening for girls, I'm going to go. And I'm like, wow. And then I came across the word um, that it was a free education. And keep in mind, it was the seventies during the oil shock. And it was a big deal in those days to get a free education. Not so much nowadays. And um, they said, and the cadets get paid a stipend. And I had to run and get the dictionary and find out what stipend meant. And it was a little allowance for clothing and books I'm like, wow. So I applied to the coast, to the Naval Academy and my guidance counselor said, Sandy, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. You've got to cast a wider net for colleges. Look at this flyer I got in the mail. It's from this place called the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. And so we poured over that flyer and between the two of us, we said, okay, the Coast Guard's just a small Navy, so I'll apply. <laughs> and of course the Coast Guard is far from a small Navy. The Navy is a great organization and it goes to war and it trains for war and it does wartime activities. The Coast Guard, on the other hand, although we become part of the Navy in times of war, we have 11 exciting statutory missions, including search and rescue, law enforcement, icebreaking, which I did, um, waterway safety. I mean, there are so many missions there, Homeland Security. And I, I just thought, wow, this is exciting. And I applied there and they got back to me right away. Whereas a Naval Academy, I was slogging through the um, nomination process. And I sat down with Senator Sarbanes, my Senator got his nomination. That was a huge process. Then I went into the queue at the Naval Academy for an appointment. Meanwhile, the Coast Guard Academy said, Hey, you're in. So I uh, responded back um, to the first person who wanted me. And um, I'm so glad I did because looking back, the Coast Guard never put combat exclusion rules and policies on its women. We were under Title 14 of the United States Code for a lot of reasons. We're still at a military force, but the other services are under Title 10. There's a few different nuances to that, but they all chose to exclude women from the pointy end of the spear. Meanwhile, when I was just a cadet, we were I was sailing for the summer, summer cruise on a 378-foot high-endurance cutter, I'm not sure if my ship at the time was armed with Harpoon and SeaWiz missile systems, Harpoon missile systems and SeaWiz defense systems, but we had ships armed like that and girls were going, women, <laughs> young girls, women were going on those ships. And my colleagues at the Naval Academy were doing no such thing. They were on oilers and yeah. supply ships. And those are all honorable missions, don't get me wrong. But the idea of being told you can't go on a destroyer or an aircraft carrier like a woman's doing now in the Navy just because you're a woman, oh, that would rub me the wrong way. Yeah. So I picked the Coast Guard and the commandant of the Coast Guard, the service chief said, hey, if we're going to have to bring women in, if we're going to bring women in, 
we're going to do it the whole way. We're going to let them serve anywhere they can serve. Now, for the listeners who might say, wait a minute, of course, there weren't as many birthing opportunities. So some of the ships didn't have the facilities to accommodate women, but the Coast Guard did not preclude us from serving at sea or in the aircraft or anywhere else on the pointy end of the spear. That's great. That's great. I, I remember we were at McDell Air Force Base when I was in ROTC and we were having a briefing by some of the PJs there, um, you know, the, their, their version of search and rescue. And they were talking about all of the minimum requirements physically that you needed to pass in order to qualify to be a PJ. And, you know, had to do with like swimming and running. And I was like, okay, I can swim. I can do this. I think I asked the question, can women be PJs? And they said, no. So we've always allowed our women to be rescue swimmers, which is the equivalent. Now, not many of them were interested or could pass. We had our first woman rescue swimmer a couple of decades ago, but very few and far between. So it is a very challenging program and uh, the standards are maintained. So we don't ease the standards so that women can pass. What's just amazing though, that the opportunity is there though, yeah. because for somebody who wants to have that opportunity, that's hungry enough, um, that's willing to put in the grit and the work to make those minimum standards, to make those standards. Um, that's so important to be able to, to know that you can't, that's an option. Um, that's, that is what attracted me to the Coast Guard. And when you're young, you don't really appreciate it as much, but looking back, I, I became more and more and more grateful for the Coast Guard as time went on. And quite frankly, less tolerant of all the people that complain about it. It's, is there's a whole attitude in our country now or some parts of it that nothing's good enough. We, we need to complain about everything and things could be better. Well, sure, but look how far we've come too. I saw that. My, wa- <laughs> my wife's bringing me something in here. She, she's it's low cute. crawling because she doesn't want to be on the That's very the camera. True. You could stay. We all do with Zoom nowadays. You got called out now, so you got to. <laughs> and then she low crawls back. I think people should look at... Um, I don't know. I, the Coast Guard, we're a great organization. Can we be better? Sure. There's always something you can do to take yourself one step higher, whether you're an individual or an organization. We've come so far in the past 40 years, and there's so many people, though, nowadays, who that's not good enough. We're just going to keep on complaining. I don't know. Make it better. Put your drops of water in the cup to bring it up from half full to all the way full and fill that cup. And every generation, every person has a duty to keep filling the cup up because our world's not perfect. But if we just sit around and complain about it and it's somebody else's job to make it better and our job is to complain about it, then we're going to have the division you have nowadays in society. So I always took the view that it was my job to keep on filling that cup and filling that glass and doing what I could to to fill it up and doing my part. I have a question for you about, so you graduate from the United States Coast Guard Academy, which is a, I mean, huge moment, um, not just for you, but as you mentioned, you were kind of one of the trailblazers for females with that. And you graduated in 1982. What were some of the early obstacles and hurdles you had to overcome as a female um, early in your career? 
<laughs> well, it, it was it was hard. So I came into the Coast Guard Academy in 1978 and graduated in 82 in the third class with women. So there were two classes before me that blazed the way. You know, it was hard um, until there were women in every single class. When I was a, a freshman, we call them um, fourth class cadets. There was still one class, the seniors, that didn't have any women. And they were very proud of that. It was their academy and the women had come to spoil it. And it was crazy to me because I'm like, didn't we all go to high school with girls and boys all sitting next to each other? <laughs> uh, so it was hard, though, because there was a feeling that any girl, woman who came to the Coast Guard Academy wasn't a real girl. Uh, and then we would be called that. Well, you're not a real girl if you want to come here, you know, and and um, we and that's when you're already in a stressful situation, it seems like a simple little thing. Somebody is just putting you down, putting you down all the time. Can't you just look past that and get over it? But it really does wear on you. So I think some of the um, low level um, stressors were just never being included, always being left out, constantly being said, you're not a real girl. And when the mandatory dances were held for cadets, they would bus in girls from all the um, girls colleges around and they wouldn't bus in any boys for us girls. So we were stuck and no boy was going to ask us to the dance, no classmate, no male classmate. Yeah, it was. And you had to go or you get in trouble. It was really, really stressful. So a really nice guy who was a classmate of mine would ask me to go to the dances, even though he didn't have to, because we girls were so stressed out. I mean, that's just the tiniest little thing. You would think I'd be telling you something about a great big incident that was a challenge. But I think that sometimes it's the little things along the way yeah. that add up. And I wanted to pick that example because too often people allow those little tiny things every day to add up as a mountain. And you can't do it. You've got to push them aside every day and start clean. Otherwise, you'll have this mountain of stress and resentment. And I could have had that, but I chose not to. And I chose to look past it and to do the best I could. If I wasn't in a position of power to do anything about it, I just got through and waited it out. This too will pass. <laughs> so I think that's a um, kind of a good formula is... Sometimes in life, things are hard and you can let it build up on you and the accumulated stress will be on your shoulders and you can let it go or you can keep it there. It's a choice. And too often we don't choose well. We're told not to choose well. We're kind of groomed towards, you know, everything being somebody else's fault or whatever, but no one can take away your choice. Yeah. You own your choices. I think someone explained it to me like bowling balls like you keep putting bowling balls those little things in the closet and one day you open it up and those things are just <laughs> going to come pouring out yes do you think that helps or do you think that had a factor in in your being so driven in your career you know maybe feeling like as a cadet you were kind of in dim long and maybe wanting to, to get to a point or a position where you could now have a little bit of authority and change things? Mm. You know, it did. And one of the most um, memorable things about the Academy to me, and this is another small thing, and I'm saying some of the small things because I know sometimes people who are looking for, let's, let's find a big challenge you had to overcome. 
But one of the small things was when I was a, a cadet, a junior cadet, like my first year, freshman, sophomore, it was hard with all the harassment and hazing in those days that you had to go through. And I would explain once in a while to friends of mine or colleagues, classmates, when I get to be an upper class cadet, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to be that way. And they said to me, oh, no, when you get there, it'll be your turn. You'll do the same exact thing to, to your, your junior cadets, your young cadets. And I'm like, I would just boil inside. I'm never, I'm not a confrontational person, so I wouldn't say anything. I would just, you know, get passionately committed to not doing what someone did to me. And so when I did get more senior, I tried to pay that forward and be the kind of leader I really wished I had. And I played that forward my whole career all the way through until I got to the senior most levels, trying to um, be the kind of person people would want to follow. But I really, looking back, not at the time, I appreciated deeply the leaders that weren't so good. Some of them were actually bad. Some of them just weren't so good. I appreciated working under them more than working for great leaders. Why? Because I learned viscerally and with passion what I would never do to somebody else. So I would never turn, um, never ask to have it, to not have this bad leaders. I would go back and do it all over again. Because even though I almost quit the Coast Guard, I had my resignation letter written twice because of bad bosses. I learned stuff from them that made me the much better leader that I am than if I just had great bosses and never been through those, the crucible or the man in the arena, like, like Roosevelt said. Going to those, you know, you mentioned right there that you, there was twice where you had your your resignation letter, like ready to go. There are people out there in the military or in, you know, corporate America who are probably listening to this, who have been to that point or probably going to get to that point where they're like, I cannot deal with this person anymore. What advice would you have for them that uh, worked for you to help you overcome those moments? So one thing I will say is that all this advice comes from looking back. (laughs) So at the time when you are the man or the woman in the arena, (laughs) in the crucible, it is really hard. So if you're in the arena, maybe you're, (laughs) there's a bull in there with you that's charging at you, or there's a gladiator that you're (laughs) fighting. You're, You're looking tunnel vision right at what you have to slay the the dragon you've got to slay or the bull you've got to slay right there you're not looking up at the sky and the bigger picture so i would recommend that people look at the bigger picture because you get consumed with the drama that's going on in your life that's making your life miserable and this happened to me with a bad boss that i had when i was commanded my first ship and i won't go into the whole story but he didn't like the idea of a young girl. It was 1990 for context. So many years ago, mm. he didn't think a, a young woman was going to be adequate to command a, a ship. It was an icebreaker on the Great Lakes. And um, I had come from being in the position of the military aide to the service secretary who had come to my change of command because he thought he was supporting me. But all it did was make senior Coast Guard people angry that the service secretary, it'd be the equivalent of um, Secretary Mayorkas, <laughs> the DHS secretary, yeah. where the Coast Guard is now, coming to the uh, lieutenant's change of command and 03's change of command. So my boss, who was an 06, said, well, we'll see how long you last. You're just the secretary's fair-haired golden girl. And so he made it his mission to 
make me quit. And he was very successful with that because even though I'm stubborn and, and wanted to keep going, I had my le- resignation letter written. That was so empowering. So I wrote it and printed it and sat it on my shelf. And I knew that if it got bad enough, all I had to do was put that thing in an envelope and mail it to the um, personnel command in, in, in uh, Washington, DC, and it'd be all over. But I never had to do that. And I learned to look at life as one meal at a time, one day at a time, one ass chewing at a time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I didn't look at it as as two more years on the ship. And by the, by by heck, the guy retired after a year and he got passed over for continued service by the Coast Guard. So I'm like, wow. So the Coast Guard realized he they passed him over and um, I kind of felt vindicated and never had to cement that letter. But it gave me confidence to know that I had a way out if I wanted to take it. But it also gave me the strength because I had that way out to go back and say, wait a minute, I can take this one day at a time. And it is going to pass and it will end. And I'm going to look up and look at the bigger picture. And quite frankly, there's another part of the story. I won't tell it because I don't want to take all your time, but I'm going to ask for help. And I'm going to look around me and find allies and um, mentors who can um, bolster me up, you know, and and help me see that there's um, more to it than just this one guy. I think that's very important when you're going through a tough time, because like you said, it can feel like you're the only one in that arena and you don't realize how beneficial it is to have a support system that can provide a buffer between you and the bull. I should tell the rest of the story then, Nina. So the rest of the story is that my chief bosun mate, who is an E7, was the deck force department head. It means he handled all the rigging, the anchors and lines and everything. And he was, of course, a list of guy. Well, my captain, this 06 in the Coast Guard, I think maybe in the Air Force too, there's a way you can come up through the ranks. So you start as an enlisted guy or gal, and you can come up to the officer ranks. So this captain that I worked for had started as a enlisted guy. And so my, um, I, I was the first woman ever to command a ship on the Great Lakes and it was in the news and everything. So it was already a high stress job and my boss had made it his mission to make me quit. Well, I had a crew of about 17 people and this chief bosun mate knew that I was trying my best and the crew was good. They, they were rallying around me, but they didn't feel like they had much power against the captain. But this bosun mate walked himself up to the captain's office one day and said, hey, shut the door and said, hey, captain, I'm going to speak freely. You got to start, stop picking on our CO, our commanding officer, because she's doing a good job and you're sending a mixed message because it's confusing the crew because they see they've got a captain that's CO, a commanding officer that's doing her job and you're finding fault with everything. And, and uh, it's, it's creating bad morale. And to the captain, the bad guy's credit, he listened to my chief bosun mate. So here's an enlisted guy standing up for a lieutenant, an E7 standing up for an O3. Uh. He was my same age. So we were peers that way, um, intellectually, mentally, and age-wise. And he stood up for me. And I, the captain backed off. And this guy, my friend Dave, the, the E7, never told me until a couple years, maybe years later. And then he explained what he had done. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's why the, uh, the captain backed off on me. And then after he backed off, shortly after that, he retired. 
but I thought it was just amazing. And what a life's lesson that here I yeah. was feeling like I was alone because when you're the captain, you do feel kind of alone when you're at the top. Uh, but this guy was there for me the whole time, had my back and I didn't even know it. That's awesome. It is. It's like, that's really awesome to hear. And I mean, talk about looking back, you were the first woman to command, as you mentioned, an icebreaker on the Great Lakes and to lead the U.S., uh, to lead a U.S. Armed Force Service Academy. What does that mean to you, like hearing that back here in <laughs> 2022? Well, it was funny because I, I started out as one of the first women to go to the academy. And yeah. as you two know, your readers, your listeners might not know this, you can't just jump ahead in the military where you've got to do your time and go up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't get ahead of your peers, um, so to speak. And so it takes a long time to get to get a woman or a minority from entry level to the senior levels. And people want instant, they want to see women and minorities at the top. Well, anyway, it takes forever. I thought I could outrun being the first woman because I didn't want to be um, identified as labeled. I didn't want to be labeled as the first woman. I just wanted to be another Coast Guardsman, Coast Guard person. And I could not run being the first and being in the spotlight. I thought I could, but um, I learned to embrace it and say, okay, I can't escape this attention, but what am I going to do? I'm going to turn it around and yeah, they want to come and they want to interview me because I'm the first woman to command the Coast Guard Academy or any service, any of the Armed Forces Service Academies for that matter but I'm going to try to turn it around and make it a bright spot for the Coast Guards. I'm going to showcase the Academy and all the great things we do here. So I learned and I matured my view on making an opportunity out of an advert, what I saw as adversity. And I kind of had learned that in my career because there's a lot of adversity in the armed forces, whatever branch you're serving in. And if you let the adversity continually get you down, it's like the bowling balls in the closet So instead, I learned to take every adversity and say, okay, I know you're in there. There's an opportunity hiding in there. Mm. I'm going to find it. (laughs) So that's kind of what I did about being the first, because it can be a burden. I mean, sometimes people look at the woman or the minority who's being spotlighted because they're the first African-American first woman. Most of us don't want that attention. Um, We'd rather just do our job and be recognized for our competence, not because we were born a certain way that we have no control over, right? So being labeled and being promoted ahead or being spotlighted because we're a certain label, most of us don't want that. We want to be earn our recognition because of our, our accomplishments. But I learned to take advantage of the opportunity because young women did want a role model. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to roll with this first woman thing. I'm going to roll with it. I'm going to be a role model. I'm going to highlight the service and brag about the Coast Guard and say what great, a great service it is for young women, because look what can happen. You can rise to the top. So I found it to be um, a passion and a message over time. A lot of what you're talking about is very relatable to me. And I know you had said earlier, your biggest fear was not believing in yourself. And it almost sounded like you were talking about like imposter syndrome? You know, that's a, that's a vogue word nowadays. I, I always try to avoid 
in phrases. I maybe I just rebel at them or something because people are always trying to come up with a new catchphrase. It's yeah. Just, it's a petty thing of mine, but you're right. There's this thing called imposter syndrome. I never, it's different. I never really felt that way. Mm-hmm. I probably just suffered from a little bit of a lack of self-confidence. And I think there's maybe a difference between imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and just basic lack of self-confidence that you're born with that you have to build up over time. I think imposter syndrome can be a little bit different, um, um, different mentality than just being unconfident and, and not really believing in yourself, but they're closely related and they do affect women more than men, I think, from my experience. So it's important to recognize if you have a challenge with believing in yourself or being confident enough or feeling like you're an imposter, if you feel that way, it's going to exude out of you and your people, you're not going to look out for your people. Cause you're not, if you don't believe in yourself, how are you going to believe in them? And your boss isn't going to believe in you. Why would he or she believe in you if you exude this lack of self-confidence? So you've got to understand that competence isn't enough to get you ahead and succeed competence has to be paired with confidence in order to succeed. You can't uncouple them. And I learned that as an ensign on a situation at sea when I was trying to qualify um, on my watch station, which was deck watch officer. I was supposed to drive the ship. I was 22 years old, right out of the Coast Guard Academy, my first ship or going to Antarctica. And I've got to qualify to drive this 300 foot icebreaker. And I developed over a few weeks, all of the competence, (laughs) all the competencies, the personal qualification standards and all that, that I needed by breaking in under experienced people. And I came to my boss one day and said, everybody's recommending me for, for qualification so that I can have a letter signed by the captain, um, authorizing me to, to stand the watch by myself in his absence. And I asked my boss, what else do I need to do to get qualified? Because everyone's recommending me, but you haven't qualified me. And he kind of scratched his head and he's like, he couldn't put a finger on it, but I pressed him because I needed to know what I needed to do to qualify at my primary duty. And he said, I got it. He says, I'm not going to qualify you until you stand on the bridge of that ship. Like John Wayne with a six gun in each hand, barking orders. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I wasn't John Wayne. I was a quietly competent young woman uh, in 1982 when the macho thing was to be um, loud and to bark orders and to lead from the top down. And I had been used to asking people to do something and believing in them, trusting them to do their job. But I, I didn't exude the kind of confidence that he was looking for. So I worried about being John Wayne. I went away from that meeting thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not John Wayne. How can I become John Wayne? And I realized I can't. And, and there's an old saying that you have to be yourself because everyone else is taken already. <laughs> so I realized I had to be myself and believe in myself. And um, once I, that clicked in my mind, I developed a different a little bit of a different air. So I, I exuded more confidence because I had come to terms with that big issue of, of um, trying to be somebody else my boss wanted me to be and realizing I had to be myself. Well, shortly after I came to that reckoning, my boss qualified me. So I think what happened was by be- learning to believe in myself more, by having more confidence, he recognized that. And he's like, okay, I can see that she's got a different way of leading. 
but she's look, she's got the confidence and the competence. I'm going to qualify her. So I know that was kind of a long story, but I think it's important because a lot of people, women sometimes and minorities, maybe who think they're underrepresented or something. Sometimes it's kind of on them. <laughs> They've got the competence. So they wonder why they're not moving ahead. They're like, well, it must be because they're discriminating against me. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's because you're not presenting yourself with the confidence that's necessary to earn the recommendation for the next step up. And you've mentioned uh, previously and um, kind of throughout this, you know, a lot about like the enlisted folks that you dealt with um, throughout your career. And I know Nina's got a question for you about uh, some of the females that you worked with, but what, uh, how important would you say that the enlisted force was throughout your development? So critical that I can't find the right word for it. So the, um, so put it this way, when I was captain of a 210 foot ship in Kittery, Maine, post 9-11, so we were really busy. We were down uh, off New York all the time for six weeks at a time in the winter time, Nor'easters blowing, trying to board high interest vessels coming into the port of New York because there was worry in those days that they'd be carrying a dirty bomb mm -hmm. and to another attack following the 9-11 attacks. There was worry about that. We were so busy and I was captain of that ship. It was a uh, me. I was... <laughs> Myself and then one, one or maybe two junior officers on there out of a crew of 75 or 80. And I will, I will tell you that um, that experience of um, being one of a few officers during that really tough time, and you had 75 enlisted people, well, 70, because you had a few officers, they were doing all the work. And if I had had to go down and start the engines in the morning and pay out the anchor chain, I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. So all I was doing was like conducting the orchestra, right? And that's a special skill set, sure. But um, I couldn't have done anything without the enlisted crew. And I think all of us who are successful officers realize that. I, because I'm because I'm an introvert, I think, and because I don't, I don't have. Um, I like to share power. I've got a whole talk about sharing power and the importance of that. I like to share power. A lot of people are worried about sharing power. I find it um, satisfying to me. And I feel like I'm, I'm empowering myself and others if I share power. So by sharing power and empowering all those enlisted guys, everybody knows that they're valued. They're being asked to do the best they can do. They know that they're dependent upon, that only they can do this job and how much they're all part of the mission. So nobody feels like they're just a cog in the wheel or something. So I know that's long-winded and everything, but I just can't say enough about the backbone of the Coast Guard as enlisted personnel. And I was privileged to command, before I commanded the Coast Guard Academy, here's what I like to be known as. Instead of being known as the first woman to command um, a service academy, I'd rather be known as the first woman in the Coast Guard, the first person, not the first woman, the first person in the Coast Guard to command both the officer recession source, our boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey, and our Coast Guard Academy um, in New London, Connecticut, which had the officer candidate school and the direct commissioned officers. So I was the first person in the Coast Guard to command both those training commands. So I have a deep appreciation for the enlisted force and how it serves, that force serves the officer core so well. 
And then before we started this conversation, the actual interview for your listeners, we talked about my um, dependence <laughs> as an admiral. I depended upon my E9. <laughs> I always had a, a, a gold badge. We call it a, a command gold badge in the Coast Guard. He's a um, the, the senior enlisted person that's serving the, the admiral. And that that master chief in the, in the Coast Guard is called a master chief petty officer would take care of all the problems and smooth the road for me so that when I did my business as the superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy, for instance, I didn't have the bumps in the, in the field. He had done all the grooming of the field, cut the grass, fertilized it. He'd taken care of all the, all the, the um, drama and trauma that can go on. And um, so I could be productive and he would take the fall. I mean, not that it's a fall, but he would take the fall with all the, the dirty little jobs with the personnel issues so that I could walk out there in my uniform and represent the uh, Coast Guard and the Coast Guard Academy to the fullest extent. So I can't even find the words and I'm, you can tell I like to talk. I can hardly find the words to talk about the value of my senior enlisted leaders who served me personally and the enlisted force who served me throughout my 40 years. Yeah. You can feel it. You can, I can feel it here on the, with your words. <laughs> I might not have the right words, but I have the passion. <laughs> you know, I think, um, so being a female in a very male dominated industry or, you know, in the military, um, was there, did you find a difference in the relationships that you had with like your male teammates versus other female teammates? That's an interesting question. Oh, so two parts to that answer. So sometimes women are harder to get along with than men. So I'm just going to be frank and say that. And there's a lot of women who would agree with me and know what I mean. I'm not going to agree with that on here right now. You can't say anything. You're out of this boating. Oh. You and I will talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I have had, you know, a woman boss or two who, you know, and sometimes there's a competition there. <laughs> you think they'd reach down and want to pull you up. And instead there's a little bit of like, let's keep the separation so that we know who's boss here. <laughs> and, and I never had that with a man. I mean, I had my bad male bosses who, but I found women could be more conniving <laughs> in a deliberate way. They didn't want you to succeed because they wanted there to be space and not to be challenged for um, the role of the top woman. I don't know. I just find that odd. And I would get criticized. I always remember, um, somebody complaining to me and they were a senior woman to me saying, well, it's not fair that um, you're only getting ahead because you're not married. You, you, you're not married. You don't have any kids. And the rest of us women who have families, it's not fair to us that you're able to work 16 hour days and get ahead when we uh, can't give that kind of time. So, and they were bitter and vitriolic about it that, and I'm like, this is what I choose to do. It's my choice. I love the Coast Guard. I never wanted to have a family. And, um, and yet I felt like I was being punished. And I will tell you, <laughs> there was at least a few times in my career where I found out either by backstories or right to my face that I almost didn't get a job because, um, and this, a woman boss told me this once that I was only assigned to this high visibility job leading an organization because they had to assign me there. The other guy they had picked didn't had to go somewhere else. 
and they didn't want to sign me because I was a woman without children and that I'd be a bad example for the women in my command because I was, didn't have any kids. I was married, but I didn't have any kids. So I'm like, I just couldn't process this. And I was an, an, an admiral at the time and I was being judged as a leader on whether I had kids or not. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is 2010 or 11 or 12 or something. And, and um, anyway, I, it's, it's complicated. I never had those problems with guys, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting you say that though, because yeah. I've seen it in my career. I've seen it in my career where I've had a, a female in charge and there's been females that have worked uh, for her. And it's been, like you said, this, like this competition, it, it, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but I've seen it a lot. It's weird. And I only say that it's not everywhere. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, but I just want to kind of crack some of the beliefs that if women have to work as a, a minority in an all male environment, that it's bad because it can be really good. I had so many wonderful men, starting with Dave Foley and well, way before him, lots of enlisted men looking out for me, lots of um, officers mentoring me. I had so many men wanting to help a young woman succeed, knowing and understanding that she was alone and needed needed um, a role model and someone to reach out the hand and pull her up. And I had women who mentored me. So, but I, I kind of want to break down some of those um, beliefs that women have to work for women or they can't succeed. Um, and you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I'm kind of like a um, person who doesn't believe in any of that stuff. I think you make your own way and you find what you're looking for. You create your own fate, you make your own choices. And uh, it's just kind of an excuse. If you say, well, if I can't work for a woman, if I have to work for men, I can't succeed or minorities. If I can't work for somebody who's my same color, my same exact skin tone, then I can't succeed. That's kind of like, I throw the BS flag on that. One thing you did mention was your husband. And I know your husband was a, uh, was am I correct on this? He's a retired uh, Coast Guard Lieutenant Commander. Yeah, but he's, he was an enlisted guy. So when I was going to the Coast Guard Academy, my husband, Bob, who I never knew at this time, was going to boot camp at Cape May. <laughs> so he graduated as a enlisted guy and he went, went up through the ranks. He made a um, warrant officer. And I know you have warrant officers in the Air Force. And then he went from there to make 03. And he ended up retiring as an 04. So, but he kept me grounded because he had been enlisted. And he was able to help me with things that officers can do that make it hard for them to relate to people. Mm-hmm. So he said to me, we're going to Cape May and that's the boot camp, And I was taking command of it. And my husband, Bob says, you know, it's going to be hard for you to relate to those enlisted people, those recruits and the enlisted people there. Cause you're so senior in 06. He says, you know, don't be one of those um, officers that turns everybody off because they're, they're scary and they're cold and everything. He says, like, when you get in the elevator with somebody, don't just have one of those frozen elevator rides, you know, when the senior person is standing oh, yeah. there and a bunch of junior people. He says, look at somebody's ribbons on their chest and say, hey, how'd you get that combination medal? And then you have a 30 second elevator ride and this guy or gal stands up tall and says, oh, I got that on a ship doing a mission. And so you kind of break the ice by showing interest in people by just picking a ribbon or something. And I did that. I did that. And I will tell you a a two second story. So I did that for years and years and years. My husband Bob had told me, get an elevator and ask somebody what they do or what their ribbon is. 
So I was in Coast Guard headquarters. I was a three-star admiral and I'm riding up the elevator with a enlisted woman. <laughs> She's a, an E5. And I said, I said, what do you do? What do you do here at headquarters? And because um, it was likely that if I asked anybody at headquarters, they worked for me somehow because I was a three-star. So um, she says, ma'am, she says, I, I, um, I, I, I build all the boats the coast and the ships the Coast Guard has. She said something like that with a really strong, proud voice. And it comes to find out she's a supply clerk. <laughs> but by gosh, she supplies all the project managers who are building the ships, <laughs> running the contracts. And so she had been taught, I'm sure, to say that she performs that, you know, is, is building those ships. And I laughed. And she was so proud of her part in the Coast Guard. It wasn't just ordering pens and pencils. You know what I mean? That's a, that is a classic bullet writing uh, example right there. In the, question in the elevator, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I asked the question in the elevator and I get a junior enlisted person a chance to feel valued. They've told the admiral what they do, right? So it's a huge win for everybody. But that's important, though, too. I mean, there's a story about somebody asking the janitor at NASA what he does. And he says, I'm helping a man get to the moon. And that's my guess, Nina, is that her boss, who I didn't even know, some some civilian or some 05 or 06 probably told her that and told the man on the moon, the, the man at Johnson Space Center story, because that is a popular story. And because um, good leaders will do that. They'll tell that that janitor story and make their people feel like, their small job every day is additive up to this bigger picture, being part of something bigger than yourself. Like I said, back when I was swimming in the ocean. Their why establish their why with yes, the, like Simon Sinek would say, right? Yeah, exactly. A question for you with uh, mentioned your, your husband, how did you manage to balance personal and professional life, especially considering you were so successful throughout those 40 years. How did you manage to balance that? Well, we didn't get married until we were both at sea most of our lives. So I was at sea for 12 years. Bob was at sea for 14 years. Now, not all at once, of course, you go from yeah. sea to shore. But um, we didn't get married till we were both 47 years old. And that was the first time either of us had been married. <laughs> we were too busy going to sea and doing our careers. We both loved our jobs. And uh, we got married at the age of 47. And uh, so by then, my husband, Bob, was ready to retire. He retired after 27 years in the Coast Guard. And then he followed me wow. around. <laughs> he was the first man at, <laughs> instead of the first lady, like at the Coast Guard Academy and stuff like that. When I was the first woman superintendent, he was um, the man who was the spouse, which was another whole thing that he had to get used to. I <laughs> oh, see so y'all have nearly 70 years collectively yeah, in the Coast yeah. Guard. sea <laughs> duty 14 plus 12 for sea duty 26 years of sea duty that is incredible <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was exhausting yeah next up is I mean you've got a book out there right now and um it, it was I saw it was propped up behind you earlier it was um, <laughs> knocked it down you're reenacting your high school track and field yeah. discus and shot put. <laughs> Nina and I were both talking before we actually before you came in, we were, we were sitting here talking and we were both like, oh, my gosh, I, I'm really wanting to read this book and to check it out. So talk to us and our listeners about 
breaking ice and breaking glass leading in uncharted waters i love the title especially considering your story but talk to us about uh what made you decide to write a book and i think i know but talk to us about how you came up with that awesome title as well okay so gosh to get one of those book stands but instead i'm using a piece of polar star an icebreaker hull plate this thing is like huge piece of steel oh, from the hole. oh it weighs eight pounds like a shot put but you can see it's the polar star and um it was when the ship was in a shipyard it's like almost two inch steel yeah, yeah. and um, my husband was an engineer so he got this piece of steel when they were repairing the ship and i'm using it as my book stand instead of going out and buying one because i haven't gotten around to it yet so sandy can i ask a, a really geeky question could you hold that piece of steel up a little bit closer i think at the bottom it said what kind of steel it was and I you're just talking nina's it. language it now low carbon high chromium steel very special steel my husband now has popped his head in because i'm in his territory and oh so high chromium, so it's also going to be very, very like rust resistant. It's like almost like a, like a stainless. He's nodding his head. Bob's nodding his head. Yes. Like a stainless type of alloy. What is it, Bob? As you read it. Okay. So, so it's, it's the ice belt for a polar icebreaker. A537. Okay. I'm writing that it's down. It's the ice belt. So the whole, the whole um, hull isn't this thick because it's like one in, seven eighths steel one and, three one and three quarter inch steel and my um commandant admiral allen took this to the hill you know okay. we're, we're building national security cutters now the coast guard is at halter marine yeah mm -hmm. i think that's what it is and and uh, he took this up to testify in front of congress wait many many years ago to show how kind of costs so much to build an icebreaker you got to figure a 400 foot ship with one and three quarter inch steel of this kind of caliber, you can imagine, do the math on how much just the hull cost. So he took this prop up to the hill in front of Congress. So famous steel. It's low carbon so that it flexes. Oh, it's cold. low carbon. I was gonna so say with the, all that cold weather, you would want something that's a little bit more ductile. You must be an engineer, Nina. I am an engineer. Yay. That's what why I came in, I could tell by the questions she was asking. My husband could tell, what kind of engineer are you? <laughs> I'm actually a civil engineer, but um, I do a lot of like welding and uh, code, welding code stuff. So, oh my gosh. That's so I feel like maybe I should go talk to Bob. <laughs> so that, was a, that has a special Coast Guard ASTM number on it. Oh, a special Coast Guard steel. Yeah. Oh, it's yes. ASTM A537-CG. Special steel up. made just for the Coast Guard. Very cool. So back to this book. So back to the book. I'm sorry. I, I was so like, this book. is one of those situations where you never, you are always surrounded by smarter people in the room than you right here. Bodhi, you need to interview Nina because I want to talk to, I, so I, I'm a government major who just drives ships. I didn't, engineering, oh my gosh, scares me. It's uh, beyond me, but I'm, that's why I married one. So I'd have that competency <laughs> next to me all the time. <laughs> so the book, when I was just a 03, working for Secretary Skinner. Uh, he was the service secretary at the time. I don't want to get into this, but the Coast Guard was part of transportation in those days before we went over to De Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. So I was his military aide, and I was going around with one of his advanced people, was a young woman my age. Her name was Shane. And I said, Shane, 
the Coast Guard's been so great to me. And look at us now. We're here in the secretary's office. We're going around at the top of the highest levels of the administration, getting all this great experience as young people. And the Coast Guard had me at sea for six years. I went to the Arctic and the Antarctic and broke ice and loved it. And uh, I'm going to write a book someday on all this experience that they've given me to give back some of the leadership lessons. And Shane looks at me and said, Sandy, you've got to call that book Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. Because <laughs> she knew I'd been one of the first women to do this yeah. or that. And I'm like, wow, that stuck. So that was in two, That was in 1989. Oh, wow. That Shane, that my girlfriend Shane named this book. So when I retired, I, so I planned on writing that book the whole time, but unlike you, Bodhi, I didn't have the determination to try to write a book while I was on active duty. So I put it on the parking lot till I retired. So I retired in 2018 and about a year and a half or two later, I had the book at the publishers and I set forth to write it, loved writing the book. And it's a book on character centered leadership and those lessons are shown through my experiences and the stories that I have from 40 years in the Coast Guard, uh, 12 of those at sea and a lot of them being the first and, and yeah. having um, all the challenges and opportunities that come with that. So it's character centered because I, at the Coast Guard Academy and all the academies, you learn to be a leader of character. That is the mission is to develop leaders of character and leading with character is different than just leading. And so I think character is actually mm -hmm. what is missing <laughs> so much today. And character comes from your core values. And so often we just skip right over that and we go right to let's lead. And we don't think about the building blocks of what makes a leader of character who people want to follow, who does the right thing always, morally and ethically sound, not pulled in a direction that they shouldn't be. Um, so it's a book on character-centered leadership uh, and told through stories and lessons. A lot of history in there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a memoir, but it's got a lot of stories. And so it does have history and, and 40 years worth. So, but it's definitely not a memoir. It definitely tells the lessons and, yeah. and uh, it's very readable from what I've been told. <laughs> so I encourage everyone to take a look. Two of us will definitely be checking it out and we'll have it listed under, like I said, our book recommendations on the website as well. Thank you. I do have it downloaded on my Kindle. So Yay. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of the physical from, copy. All the proceeds from the book are being donated to the Coast Guard Academy Institute for Leadership to develop the next generation of cadet leaders. And my first royalty check was uh, cut directly to the Coast Guard Academy Alumni Association to donate, to deposit in that fund. So my publisher's um, sending all my royalty checks right to the Academy. So I say that because anyone who buys the book yeah. is contributing to a good cause because it's all about giving back for me. Good friend of mine. And oh, I was just going to say good friend of mine and actual uh, former guest of the show, Dylan Roberts, just recently graduated from the Coast Guard Academy. So that's uh that's pretty cool. He's got a good story. He's a motivated young man. I really have a lot of respect for him. Yes, he he is awesome. He really is. I was just going to say, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, throughout your career it was about paying it forward and even as a retire even while you're retired, you're still paying it forward, Sandy. 
trying to, it goes back to that biggest fear of not meeting up to my own expectations. And so I'm, I guess, you know, maybe it goes back to my faith a little bit. I'm a Christian. I believe in God and that he gave me gifts and opportunities. And I feel so richly blessed. And I feel like I can't squander that. So I have the fear is not achieving the full potential that God gave me and that people expect of a leader like me. So I have tried to pay it forward and give back. Yeah, I was going to ask that Nina, Nina's killing it with these questions. I was going to ask, how do you still stay, you know, motivated um, at this point? But, you know, one of the questions I do want to ask you is you have, as we mentioned at the top of this, very illustrious career uh, behind you with what you've achieved and trailblazer all the way through with what you've done throughout the Coast Guard and, and the military in general. When somebody mentions you, because uh, you will be mentioned, you know, 50, 100 years from now. Um, when people are reading all their military history and so forth, what do you want people to say about you? I'm going to say the first thing that came to mind. Sometimes I probably shouldn't, but I've been successful this way. So when you were asking the question, the first thing that came to mind is, I hope they'll say that I was a leader who people wanted to follow, that they followed me because they wanted to, not because they had to, which goes to the whole thing of paying it forward and, and trying to share the power and trying to motivate and inspire people and, and seeing that as my job as a leader, not so much the accomplishments and the goals and getting it done because your guys and gals are doing that for you. You know, you might be the top one, but that to go back to that ship example of 80 people doing all the work and you're the one who's conducting the orchestra. So, yeah. So if they would say that, yeah, people actually followed her because they wanted to. Now, I'm not sure they would say that. I'm not going to be the judge of that, but I would hope that's what people would think. Yeah, based off this conversation and based off your, your story, I, I couldn't find a reason why people would not want to to follow you. Um, no, I wish I was in the Coast Guard now. I wish I had picked I know. I know. <laughs> but let me tell you one thing about to qualify that, though. Um, this is, goes back to my biggest fear. Yeah, it's easy. You're four years out. You've written a book on leadership. You've had years to reflect on the kind of leader you, you want to be. Were you actually, was I actually that leader I talk about when I was in uniform every day? <laughs> so every day I did try to earn respect and build trust from my people, not to presume I had it on my three stars when I got to be a three star. I really tried to say, I'm coming into work and I'm going to try to earn my respect. So I got the three P's of power as a lesson. Uh, one of my bosses told me once there's three kinds of power, personal power, professional power, and position power. And if you're going to succeed, you should lean on the first two and use the third, the position power, only when you really have to. So I made my life for 40 years trying to earn respect through personal power and professional power. So basically who you are and how you treated people and what you knew and how hard you worked, the professional type things. And I found that I very seldom had to lean on position power if i focused on personal power and professional power i'm still in that i am too yeah well i'm actually i'm gonna i'm gonna be teaching personal professional power in about two days by the time we're recording this so i'm totally gonna i'm gonna give you credit but i'm I'm incorporating that into my lesson so got you on that one well if our listeners out there want to find out more about you they want to get a copy of your book where can you point them to 
I made it easy for them. I have a lovely website that somebody designed for me. And it's at www.sandrastows, all one word, dot com. And I have a section in there on how to buy the book. And you can get the book from anywhere books are sold. You can get it from Amazon. You can go to your local bookstore and they'll order it for you. <laughs> There's lots of ways. And I also hope that people will go to my website, sign up for my newsletter, and they'll get my weekly Leading with Character blog. I send that out. I Ooh. publish it through Homeland Security Today. It's a trade publication for uh, Homeland Security Today. So they can see my blog, Leading with Character, every week if they sign up. Awesome. And what final comments do you have for our listeners? Become the leader that people want to follow. Lead with character, always. I like it. I like it. Well, ma'am, I can't thank you enough for taking time uh, to be here with us. And Nina, thank you so much. You, you killed it here. So this was this was awesome. I loved having an engineer. Yeah. Thank I know. You, you right up for Allie. The it book. Was all Sandy. It, it was so easy to talk to you, Sandy. I'm going to look you up on LinkedIn. Are you on there? I'm going to send you a uh, request. That book kept falling for a reason. It was speaking that right behind it was speaking to Nina this entire episode. Like, call me out. So, feel <laughs> back there. <laughs> yes. Well, Thank you so much, both of y'all. This was an incredible episode. Folks, we're going to have all of her information in this episode description. Head over to our book recommendation. Check out her book and all of her book recommendations as well. Folks, this will conclude this episode of the Shadows Podcast. 